Do you suspect or even know if your teenager is using drugs? Do you struggle with figuring out what to do next? Do you feel overwhelmed, scared, or angry? Well, you are not alone. This is the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast, where we explore all the signs of teen drug abuse, reveal science-based impact, and share potential solutions that might just be the next thing you need to try. Here's your host, Zeev Raviv. Hello and welcome to the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. Today with me is Christine Kapshu. She's a clinical social worker that has been practicing for 20 years and decided to open a mental health and trauma treatment center that also deals with drug abuse in Virginia. Hello, Christine Kapshu. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. I want us to focus today talking about addiction, especially drug addiction for teens. First of all, like this is a, just a, like saying, thinking about it, saying out loud that your kid maybe is addicted or is addicted. That's something that is quite scary for a lot of parents, isn't it? It really is. As a matter of fact, most parents do not want to even look at that. They, that is their worst nightmare. So in order to kind of understand if the situation is that severe and what does it mean, we need to first kind of understand what is addiction. Is it different for teens? So what's your experience with that? There is some differences between how we might talk about addiction with teens and how we might talk about addiction with adults, primarily because our teenagers already are going through an awful lot just in looking at their developmental milestones and what they're trying to achieve. And our teens these days, they're up against a lot more than they were many years ago. So the way they present with the possibilities of addiction is a little bit different than what we might see with adults. I think that a lot of time because of all technology and and phones and we look at kids and we say they grow up faster, they're exposed to a lot of ideas faster. And when it comes to drugs, they're exposed to ideas of drugs and even have relatively easy ways to acquire them as a result of, of technology. So how do you, like as a parent, actually know if your, your kid is actually addicted to drugs? I, I want to go back and you're, before I answer that, this whole idea of the ideas of drugs and the ease and way we're getting it is actually part of the hidden places that parents are unaware. And so what happens, particularly with the ideas of drugs, is that social media plays a bigger portion of introducing, I guess, normalizing drug behavior, particularly with alcohol and marijuana. And so those are usually the the ways that we would see our adolescent and teens beginning with drug use and then building from there. And the ease in which they're getting it, unfortunately, it is so widespread that it's not just even being able to buy, purchase things online, but it's also being able to have other people purchase for you. So what we, what a parent might look for would be initially sudden change in interests. And that's why I wanted to go back to that idea about the technology. I have 
teens who tell me that their pastime is watching YouTube videos on drugs, drug use, drug awareness, things like that. So if they're not doing it, they're thinking about it, or they're in action of looking at the various ways they can use drugs. So we would see increase in technology, possibly increase in isolation, change in friends. We might see, depending on what the normal communication was between a parent and a child, we might see a breakdown of that, more secrecy, more isolation. It could even be more irritation and more anger. So those are some of the beginning subtle clues that we might see before the, wait, what is really going on? Do I have a problem? Do I need to look at this? Those symptoms are a little bit different. So we're going to get into those symptoms, the ones that are like of a clear sign that this could be an addiction in a, in a minute. But before that, I want to ask you from your experience, helping and guiding parents in running a treatment center, do you think that the early signs of, let's say, wearing the, the, the weed symbol on trying to buy all sorts of things that had that and consuming, uh, I don't know, Netflix shows about drugs, there's all sorts of shows that are clearly showing how to bake cakes with it and how to, to, to lie to the cops about it and all sorts of things. And like, if you as a parent start to notice those signs, would you recommend some sort of an intervention and what type of an intervention? I love that question. So absolutely, those are some very distinguishable early signs of red flags. And it's interesting, most of the parents that I work with, they don't know how to talk to or approach their teens or early adolescent when it comes to alcohol or marijuana, because both of those things are pretty normalized. And yet that's where we begin the conversation. So an intervention for me is opening up those lines of communication between the parent and the child to say, hey, I want to talk about drugs. I want to talk about your friends. I want to talk about these things. And there's a difference between talking about or talking at. Because a lot of times we as parents, I, I am a parent, I'm a parent of three children. And so we as parents, we get a little nervous about what we're going to hear from our kids. And we don't want to hear the things that maybe we're afraid of. So we already have kind of a, a thought of how we're going to deal with that. And my suggestion for parents is to work to put that aside because at one point we were children too. And we were confused and we had identity issues and we didn't know who we were and we had raging hormones and we had belongingness issues and some of us didn't have a person to talk to. And so it's very important if we're going to open the lines of communication up to kind of just be curious about what it's like for your child walking in the world. Thank you for reminding us all. Uh about how complicated it is to, to be a teenager and, and how to come to a, to a conversation that has curiosity in it and not be threatened by the communication uh, being open. And I think that we're going to get to more severe situations like addiction, 
and having the the foundation of of being able to talk about these things is going to be to prove potentially even life saving down the line when when you get and if you get to the point where your kid is addicted and a lot of times those signs does not lead to addiction so when is it where like what are the signs and what are the implications where you might suspect that this is more than some sort of a hobby or some sort of interest more than an adventurous curious uh, nature of, of a teenager but actual repetitive usage that takes over the kid's life so there are stages of addiction that we go through and i think you did a great job of talking about the early stages of is it a hobby i'm curious maybe some peer pressure and for each of us from a genetic standpoint and addiction is a brain disease so the use of drugs influences how our brain is wired and the impact of the drugs will be different for each of us based on some genetic disposition and so it's kind of a slippery slope to decide at which point do we say hey your hobby is now addiction it could be different for each person. One person can have alcohol and immediately recognize that they have no satiation limit. And that is already at addiction because no satiation and pleasure from drinking will automatically keep that pattern going. Okay. And that can happen at any age from eight years old and on. That is just the nature of addiction. However, the norm is we would see over time increased use and we would see increased, or what what I should say is more of a decreased ability to get high with the same amounts. So we would see increased amounts of whatever we're using. And then we would see it going from the hobby to I'm thinking more and more about it as a resource to help me feel better. And then we would change from there to dependence. And a lot of people, you know, it's hard to decide, hey, am I in dependence or am I in addiction? So we really do have to look at some of the outside experiences that we're seeing to determine that. Stealing is one of them, right? We steal money, kids hawk stuff all the time. If you guys have like stuff in your in your garage that you haven't done anything with in years, that's an opportunity for a kid to say, hey, if I hop that in, I can get a little bit of money and that can get me some dope I can pick up, right? If you have silverware, coins, anything of value, cameras, they take it to a pawn shop and they'll pawn it and then they use the money. So they're stealing. There's also a lot of kids will deal drugs and kids are smart. They don't deal the drug they're using, but they'll deal a drug that'll get them good money so that they can pay then for their drugs. So you have that kind of really significant behavior. Of course, that's coupled with skipping school, blatantly lying, and no remorse for that. It's not the lying. It's not the skipping school. It's the attitude that we see in terms of 
the behavior of our teens. I don't care. I hear it a lot. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about school. I'm not going anywhere anyways. So what you begin to see is their mentality around who they are begins to just get narrow and they don't see their possibilities anymore. They lose sight of themselves. And what do they think at this stage about their future? Do they even care about that? Not really. No, it goes away. So if we look at the impact that the drugs have on, on our kiddos, right? I just want to kind of put it to you in, in this way. We talked a little bit about how complicated it was in the beginning. So hormonally, our kiddos are a hot mess, whether they're high in testosterone, estrogen, whatever. But what we know about drugs is that it's a dopamine and serotonin relationship. And so if our body is not producing the chemicals in the right way, that already is going to set our kids off. So we don't know that until it's too late, really, with some of our kids, because they had these anxious thoughts, social anxiety, could be anxiousness about going in, in, into a new school, middle school to high school is a big change. So there's a lot of nuances there that influence that. And then you have if you have a parent who's on medication or a grandparent who is on pain medication, that's your easy access. And I hear that number one all the time is where they're getting it is right at home. Wow. I know this is not something that like all teens that go through drug abuse and drug addiction uh, necessarily go through, but is there a connection between this uh, tendency to not look into the future, to not care anymore, nothing matters, and suicide attempts and suicidal tendencies. Is there a connection between the two? There is. There's a very significant connection in there. At the point where a child, a person, thinks that they're so hopeless and they've done nothing but disappoint their parents or they're a disappointment and what I would call that is is huge amount of shame. And when our teens can't figure out how to get out of that shame cycle, then some people will just start self-harming. And when you are self-harming, which we could call cutting, burning, because some people will burn their skin, what happens is it sets off some endorphins, which sets makes some relief happen. So what we know is that some of the suicides that happen from cutting or from self-harm are accidents. What we also know is that right now, particularly with the opioids, fentanyl is being found in everything. And so we're having a lot of, of death. And the reason why I'm saying it to you this way is because it's very difficult to figure out sometimes, was this an intentional suicide? Was this a death? Because it's particularly with opioids, if they, they chase the high. So it's basically death by overdose, by self-inflicted overdose, that sometimes is even tied yeah. with a wish of death. Yeah. Or a wish of relief. It is about the relief. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's a whole topic all of itself. Of course, of course. You know, it, it really is very complicated. I wouldn't want anybody listening to kind of get 
overly concerned with this because although the numbers are high, this is a little bit off where we were. Well, that's one of the reasons why identifying addiction is so important. Now, sometimes you mentioned like that there's a genetic component to the tendency of a person to be more inclined to become addicted. Does that mean that some people are like safe and they will never get addicted? I know this is going to sound very weird, but in a way, yeah, there are people who could drink or use different drugs very heavily. And if they decide or say, you know what, my life is not functioning really well that way. I want to put that down. Their ability to change their habit might have some work to do, right? The dependence stage, but it is not where the brain, the reward center in the brain is signaling for that dopamine hit all the time. And that also means that if someone has the tendency in their genetics to become addicted, their way out of it can be almost impossible or very, very hard, even with relatively small amount of weeks into using. Is that correct? It is with some caveats. So one of the things that we know is that Uh, naltrexone works super efficiently with opioids and also alcohol. And the reason why it does is because the way naltrexone works with the body is it comes in and it puts like a cover over those dopamine receptor sites. So the cravings dissipate. And when we add good treatment in there, when we add nutritious foods, because In active addiction, our body gets depleted from a lot of our nutrition, you know, our supplements are, and so we don't have what we need to then participate from a physical way of getting healthy. So changing our habits, our people, our places, psychoeducation, restoring relationships with our parents, with our siblings, with good people is really paramount too, to begin to feel loved, to begin to find that worth again. Those are some of the stepping stones of coming back out of the addiction place, right? So when we add some medication management in there when appropriate, that can be um, helped. Drugs like marijuana though are not, you have to kind of rough that out. And- um, What do you mean by that? Uh, I need you to expand. uh, Sorry about that. Okay. So isn't it kind of interesting? A lot of people don't know that if you decided to stop getting high, that you still have withdrawal symptoms depending on how much you used, right? People don't think about that. But just like you would if you gave up drinking or cocaine, you have withdrawal symptoms. You have irritability, you have aches and pains, you might have lethargy. There could be a lot of anxiety. So from an emotional standpoint, we see the symptoms of the physical withdrawal. How about the depression and, and mental uh, health? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the reasons why it's important for us to be able to identify psychiatrists who know what they're doing with addiction, and it's actually called addiction medicine is so that you can get some good counsel 
on what is the best way to detox. I'm going to be honest about it because we're talking about kids. And I have now spent the last, I would say about four months trying to find solid detox places around my area here for kids. And they don't really exist. It is kids are one of the highest need right now. And one of the hardest to get treatment for right now. I know this is a little bit off topic, but it's so important because you've been dealing with this uh, lately and, and a lot of parents don't know what is a good detox solution. What should they look for? What's your take on that? I love that question. And I love that question because a lot of times what a detox place is trying to do is more psychiatric, more like mental health, and it's completely different. So in mental health, if you are having some kind of a a breakdown, let's just say somebody says you need to go inpatient for mental health, that is not detox, okay? And you have to sometimes know what it isn't to know what it is. What it would be, would be a medical facility that would be able to attend to an individual with good, careful medication management to mitigate the symptoms that the person is having. And a lot of times what that they'll do is they'll taper that medication then off over about five to seven days, depending again on the drug or on the intensity in which the person is coming in with. Meaning they will reduce the amount and will do like a harm reduction. Yeah, so that by the time, so if a person comes in initially, they may give them some high dosages to help them with their withdrawal symptoms of whatever whatever the doctor recommends. And then as the days go on, they're going to withdraw some of that medication that they're giving them because their body should be detoxing off that. So that by the time they're finished, Maybe then they're at a point where if it's alcohol or opioids, they could be on naltrexone. But the bottom line is we would want to go from a detox facility into treatment. So uh, back to the detox centers question, like what should a parent ask? What should a parent look for? So I think the very first thing that a parent would want to do would be to look for a residential facility that offers detox services. because. They're, the hospitals that are around don't necessarily specialize in detox, particularly for adolescents. You will find, and I, I don't know how it is in some of the areas that you serve, some places may be a little bit more liberal than others, but you do need to ask the questions about whether they treat the adolescent population. And if you can find the residential facilities that do have substance abuse treatment there, you can ask them if they also do the, the, will they help their child detox as part of the program? Would you consider, Christine, recommending parents to send their kid to go through detox, even if the addiction is clearly addiction, but it's an addiction to weed? Yes, absolutely. They're 200%. What makes weed the worst addiction is for a person, for the individual. So I want us to remember that we have the person who's smoking, and then we have the people who are living with that person. Those are two different lived experiences. 
And so usually the person that's smoking, they're the ones that are not really looking at their life clearly. They don't have any idea that they're not living into their potential, that they're really losing interest or motivation in any of the the aspects of their life, whether it be hobbies that they used to like, friends, movies, anything. It could even be food, as I've heard, and that their only interest is in getting high 24-7. So for them to be able to stop means that they'd have to fight the withdrawal and the cravings. And just the other day in talking to a young young guy, he told me that I can't get through the withdrawal symptoms. I just use again to do that. And the residential facility isolates a, a person for as much time as sometimes insurance will cover, but it's good to have a minimum of 30 days. And in that 30 days, the fog begins to lift from the substance use. So we begin to see then a little bit more clarity and the ability for a person to even reflect back and say, wow, was that me? And kind of have that that viewpoint. So you said 200% uh, that even weed addiction and is something that uh, is important to detox because it affects they actually from the detox, this whole fog that affects all, how they think and how they behave they, is lifted. And they kind of become themselves again. In a way, they, they connect to who they are. They are starting to see other things that are interesting to them. And yeah. it's a big, important part of, the, of yeah. treating the addiction. It takes about three years for the brain to heal fully from an addiction. Wow. Yeah. For the first 30 days, what we're doing is we're just trying to clear out the brain fog. We're just trying to kind of help a person regain some normal sleep pattern, maybe, or regain some normal food pattern, maybe, or regain an ability to connect back and understand their emotions, maybe. Right. And then the next 30 days after that, we begin to see a little bit more clarity and cause and effect in the healing. Like, oh, I see how this was with that, right? So the time under our belt, the more time that we can have without having any substances in there, by then what we're doing is we're actually creating new neuropathways in our brain. And we begin to repattern the way we think the way we process, and the way we deal with difficult situations. Does dopamine hits caused by, not, not by substance, but for example, by, by, by video games or, or phones, are those during the process of trying to, to overcome addiction, to detox, yeah. that, does they make it harder for, for the teen to, to actually resist the urge to go back? Yes, there is a correlation between any kind of, I'm going to preface this with blue screen, blue light, because that's what we call it. And research has shown us that the brain viewing anything with blue light, so it could be gaming, it could be videos, it could be any kind of technology, even being on our phone and scrolling through Instagram or Snapchat or all of those 
has the same light up. Our brain lights up in the same places as drugs. And so we don't, the things that we, when we're looking at the three years that I was saying about the brain healing, we're looking at reducing activities such as overspending, gambling, any blue lights, any of the addictive behaviors that are passive, we are now finding out influences that dopamine level. We could have talked uh, for a lot longer and, and clearly your understanding of the things that parents and teens are going through with addictions is very deep. I would like to just end up with just addressing the topic of stigma. What would you tell to parents to overcome the, the fear of what will people think, what will mom think, and what will the teacher think, and what will my sister think, and, and actually deal with, with potentially an addicted kid? Sure. I, that I think is one of the most difficult things that we all deal with, even in our own lives, is how do we manage the stigma of? And what I've found to be most helpful are having people well-read on what addiction is and what addiction isn't so that they have an understanding of what they're talking about. So really understanding the brain science behind addiction helps reduce the stigma a lot. Because if you can actually sit there and say to someone, addiction is a brain disease and here's why, then the person who is advocating on behalf of their child feels the power there, that there's power in knowledge there. And I think that the other thing that is very helpful for parents who are trying to figure out what to do with that stigma is to find groups with like-minded parents who are also in the same place because it really helps to know that they're not alone and that their experiences are what they're feeling regardless of age, race, or socioeconomic status is all very similar. And those two things in and of itself, coupled with bravery to start talking and being able to see where the empathy from others comes from, that's what my recommendation would be. It's like, I love it that you call it brain disease, because if our kid would have a, a repetitive stomachache of, of sorts, or they would break their leg or anything that is physical, their tooth is is uh, constantly aching, we'll take them to a doctor, we'll, we'll treat the disease, we'll treat the Ill illness. And right. this is something that is maybe not so visual, it impacts the way they behave, and, but you have to actually treat it. You have to actually own that your kid is sick. That's right. Christine Capshu, this has been enlightening. Thank you so much for all the knowledge that you share. Where can people go to learn more about what you do and about your treatment center? We have a website and that is www.consciouscealingva.com. And when you're on that website, there's also a contact form on the back page. If any of your listeners have any questions or would like anything addressed, I have no problem helping anyone out who has any questions about this. It's, it's a really dicey subject and I loved your word complexity right at the very beginning. We could have talked a long time on many different things, but I also think that if people were to look up National Association of Addiction Medicine, there's information there that's called NADAC. And then there's SAMHSA, which is also has a lot of information about addiction. 
what they'll notice is there's similarities around the brain disease piece. The nuances would be really in the treatment piece, but many people now are writing a lot more educational information around how to help support our children. They are our future. And we will put all the links and the information about those organizations, about your work in the show notes at teendragabuse.co. Thank you so much again, Christine, for your time and for helping so many people find hope and uh, heal. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. To get additional resources and support, go to teendrugabuse.co.